G'day mate, 40 here. I'm going out live over Rumble. We're going out live over YouTube. We're going out live over Odyssey. We're going out live over Twitter. We're going out live over we're Facebook. Right, we're, we're talking to the world right now. Lionel Messi, Kanye West. What a month for the autistic overlords. So I was just reading Steve Saylor's website, the comments section, and uh, there are these theories of Lionel Messi that uh, he might be might be a little uh, different cognitively, and I think that really makes sense. We're, we're, you know, we're probably talking about uh, an autistic genius with uh, good old Lionel Messi. And so Big Sailor was talking about how we find soccer boring. Can you imagine that? I don't find soccer boring. It's a fantastic sport. It's a cerebral sport. So it's funny how angry Lionel Messi got in the Argentinian team. They felt disrespected by Louis van Gaal and the Dutch team and the Dutch attitude and comments before the game. And the Dutch were so much taller than the Argentinians. The Dutch are the, the tallest country in the world. Argentina is one of the shortest teams in the World Cup. They're, they're known for their tiny stars like uh, Maradona. Lionel Messi. So the Dutch like to use long ball. That's the style of soccer where you've got teams making long, high passes in the air into the box and they try to use their tall forwards and use their height advantage to head the ball to gain possession against shorter defenders. So Argentina was up against the Dutch 2-0. And the, the Dutch came back in the last 10 minutes of the match and uh, tied it up, sent it into extra play, and then Argentina won in penalty. So why do only Americans say that soccer is boring? Like, only Yanks go on and on about how soccer is boring. Right? It's, I think it's an incredibly exciting sport. I think soccer is boring if you're not raised with it, if you're not used to it, if you didn't grow up in a soccer-playing and watching culture. Right? People aren't objective about their subjective taste. So I find X to be boring is always a far more objective statement than the broad brush statement, X is boring. If billions of people are watching the World Cup, so probably over 3 billion people watch the World Cup, obviously that's, that's not a boring contest. But American sports don't translate around the world. When, when they have the Super Bowl, you don't have tens of millions of people outside the United States watching the Super Bowl. It just doesn't happen. Right? When it comes to sport, it's the English sports that, that dominate. Right? It's not, the, it's not uh, American football. It's not American baseball. Basketball. Right, that has you know, much, much wider reach around the world. That is the American sport that is translated in a big way. So some great comments here on Steve Saylor's blog. Right. So many people find baseball and golf to be excruciatingly boring to watch, yet 10 millions of people still watch these things. How do I feel about watching soccer on TV as opposed to football or baseball? 
Uh, I find American gridiron football, right? That's what you call American football in Australia, call it gridiron. Uh, I find that the most exciting sport to watch on the telly. And then soccer is even more than after that, you know, highly exciting because it's also a world game. So there are so many other people and countries that you can connect with. Like I got up at 1 a.m. to watch the World Cup of Soccer because I was sharing an experience with 1.5 billion people. So that's that's powerful. It's, it is the, the world game. And then I find basketball very exciting to watch. Uh, baseball, not so much. Uh, cricket, I, I really enjoy cricket, but I wouldn't call cricket usually very exciting. But what a match this weekend. It was the first time in the entire history of international test cricket that you had a cricket match decided on the weekend. Only 21 international test cricket matches in over you know, 120 years of playing international test cricket have been decided in two days. This is the only one that was decided on a weekend because we had a very interesting grassy uh, wicket at the Gabba in, in Brisbane, Australia. And then what about the, the British team? They, they were over here. The English cricket team was over here last year when I was here. The Australians wiped them out 4-0 in test cricket matches. Now the English have won nine of the last 10 test cricket matches, including three in Pakistan, where they never win in Pakistan. And they're just playing such an exciting brand of cricket. I mean, they're scoring over five runs and over in test cricket, which is absolutely unheard of. Just very aggressive approach. The, the the British captain, the English captain, Ben Stokes, I mean, the most innovative, you know, fascinating field placements. He's putting the fielder behind the wicketkeeper. He's putting fielders where you've never seen fielders before. He's just using a very aggressive field to try to take wickets rather than trying to restrict runs. Care to tell us anything about the art gracing the background? Uh, these are just some of my watercolors. Uh, just some, some traditional Aboriginal art which uh, reminds me of something I was reading here in the Atlantic. Did you catch that Atlantic article? Is why is Marjorie Taylor Greene like this? Here's just a little section from the Atlantic. Forsyth County in Georgia was a calm, quiet, ordered place, but it had a history. In September 1912, an 18-year-old white girl was found bloodied and barely breathing in the woods lining the Chattahoochee River. She died two weeks later. Within 24 hours of her discovery, four black men had been arrested and charged with assault. White mob dragged one of the suspects from his cell and hanged him from a telephone pole, right, a lynching. Two others were tried and executed. White residents then decided to undertake nothing short of a racial cleansing. On horseback, armed with rifles and dynamite, they drove out virtually all of the country's black counties, black population, more than 1,000 people. So successful were their efforts that the county would experience the modern civil rights era vicariously at best. There were no whites-only signs to fuss over in Forsyth County in Georgia because there were no black people to keep separate. So it was kind of similar to large parts of Australia. Aborigines were just completely wiped out or they died of diseases. Same to the United States. You had all these battles between the settlers and the indigenous people. Eventually, the European settlers just decimated the indigenous you know, completely wiped out their way of life, stuck them on reservations, and then you didn't have racial conflict anymore, right? When you have one very clear, distinct winner and one very clear, distinct loser, then you, by and large, get an end to racial conflict. 
right? So the Atlantic says, all of which is to say is that Marjorie Taylor Greene's worldview was shaped in a community artificially devoid of socio-cultural conflict, a history scrubbed of tension. So racial cleansing, ethnic cleansing, however you feel about it, is not an artificial thing. It's been going on for thousands of years. It happens in nature all the time, right? You don't find multiple versions of pond scum in the same pond. One subspecies of pond scum will drive out the other species of pond scum. In nature, to the best of my knowledge, in one very specific location, you don't find multiple subspecies. One subspecies drives out all the other subspecies. And so if you look at Deuteronomy 7 in the Bible, God commands the Israelites to commit genocide essentially against the native peoples of Canaan, just wipe them out, destroy their altars, destroy all their religious artifacts, destroy everything about the native people, possess the land by wiping out the native inhabitants. So this is how the world has usually worked for thousands of years. All right, so it's not artificial. And most of the world punishes these sorts of problems collectively. It's only the Anglo world, almost alone in the world, that, uh, that believes that only individual wrongdoers should be punished for their sins rather than their tribe or community or, or people. Generally speaking, in the world, when you act badly, right, your people, your tribe suffer. It's the Anglo world that has the idea that only the people, individuals who act badly, should be punished. And that I love this sentence. Marjorie Taylor Greene's worldview was shaped in a community artificially devoid of socio-cultural conflict, a history scrubbed of tension. So naturally, life should be just filled with tension. Life naturally should just be filled with racial conflict. Boy, how, how sad that would be. Just imagine living in a community where you felt at ease. Just imagine living in a community that was scrubbed of racial tension. Wow, that sounds like Australia. I've been right around Australia, right? Well, aside from West Australia, and aside from Tasmania, and aside from Northern Australia, and aside from the Northern Territory, and aside from, like, the great epicenter of Australia. But I've been to Melbourne and Sydney and Brizzy and Gladstone, right? I haven't experienced much racial tension in Australia, right? I don't feel like Australians have been culturally and socially and psychologically deprived because they don't experience all this racial tension, which is part and parcel of life in America. Like, life in America is so much more tense, so much more filled with, with conflict, like, so much more uncomfortable, right? Because you have so many different races and cultures and religions, right, in very close proximity to one another, leading to constant conflict and frequently you know, tragedy, right? That's what happens. Diversity, proximity, sometimes equals beautiful things, sometimes equals you know, tragedy and awful conflict. So I'm speaking to you right now from central Queensland, Australia, and about 150 years ago, this area was violently cleansed of Aborigines, and they've largely never come back. So ever since then, there's only been microscopic rates of violent crime, sociocultural conflict, and related racial tension, right? I don't think the residents of central Queensland have suffered from this lack of crime and tension. So, the Atlantic concludes, whether Marjorie Taylor Greene actually believes the thing she says is by now almost beside the point. I think this goes true for YouTube live streamers and pundits as well. Right? She has no choice but to be the person her followers think she is, because her power is contingent on theirs. The mechanics of actual leadership, diplomacy, compromise, patience, not only don't interest her, but represent everything her followers disdain. To soften or engage in better faith is to admit defeat. So I think that is a very sharp analysis of 
the majority of pundits, the majority of nationally syndicated political radio hosts, the majority of successful political YouTubers. Am I sure I want to argue human standards from non-human examples? I'm not talking about human standards. I'm talking about the way the world works. Most of my show is not about what should be. Most of my show is about what is. What is all the random noise in the room? Well, this isn't some elite you know, studio. I'm a man of the people. There are people moving around. There are people preparing meals, right? This is, this is not some, you know, elite, uh, you know, sealed off, you know, studio where I can come to you from some kind of elite sealed off perspective. I'm a man of the people. I'm down with the people, living with the people. There's the kitchen here and the office there and living room over here and the bedrooms back here and I got the, the loo back here and the shower and people are coming and people are going, right? We're all in it together. I'm a man of the people. I'm not some hoity-toity, you know, intellectual, pointy-headed intellectual snob, you know, coming to you from some rarefied studio, right? I'm down with the people. So when I used to live here in Tatum Sands, my nickname was Puke Luke because I, I thought I was making progress with this woman, and so I kept buying her drinks, and uh, then she started throwing up. And so... That's how I got the nickname Puke Luke. Right, Steve Saylor writes about Israel's dumb culture. Israel doesn't score particularly high on standardized tests. Maybe this has something to do with the ancient Zionist policy of de-intellectualizing Israeli Jews. But the new Jews forged in Israel, they just weren't going to be scholars and merchants and moneylenders. They'd be farmers and they'd be soldiers. So Israel has wound up with a dumbed-down culture where Mizrahi, right, Middle Eastern Jews, cultural tastes are considered more desirable than snobby Ashkenazi tastes. So the average Ashkenazi Jewish IQ is around 92. The average Sephardic Jewish IQ is around 97. The average Ashkenazi Jewish IQ is around 110. I'm just keeping it real, right? I'm a man of the people. I'm coming to you from the people. This is like Grand Central Station. People are moving through. People are, are harvesting their vegetables from the garden. They're, they're getting their corn. They're preparing their evening meal, right? People are living here. People are loving here. People are arguing here. People are coming together. People are splitting up, right? There are matches being made right now. They're there are contacts being made there's like human connection like the the messy vital stuff of life is going on all around me i'm not the type of bloke who just stands in some you know filtered sealed off studio to give you you know my my top-down thoughts i'm here with the people coming at you, you know, right next to the kitchen, just sitting here at the kitchen table as life and love just flourishes all around me. There's a beautiful compost uh, hole back there, there lovely vegetables. There's a cricket wicket. There's you know, all these beautiful plants, this lovely artwork. There is love. There is life here. There's radical love and inclusion, right? This is not, you know, some hoity-toity, top-down kind of show where I'm just, you know, coming at you from above, just, you know, speaking at you like I'm God outside eye, right? I'm not telling you how the world is. This is social learning, right? I share my thoughts. You share your thoughts. You challenge me. I challenge you as steel, right? As steel meets steel, right? So two good men sharpen each other. And that's what's going on here.
Hasn't the Zionist state suffered from brain drain for decades? Yes. Natives leaving for the greener pastures of the United States. So people who want to be at the top of their professions, you know, frequently move to the United States. So if the number one thing in your life is your profession, the number one thing in your life is your personal ambition, the number one thing in your life is to work in Hollywood or to work in Silicon Valley or to, you know, start a high-tech, you know, company, right, or to, you know, innovate medical technology or to cure diseases or to make advances in, in some field. If that's the number one thing of importance to you, in all likelihood, you'll feel strongly incentivized to move to the United States. But the most important thing in your life is to be happy, to be with your family, to be with your relations, to be with your friends, to be with your mates, to live in your community, to get married, to have kids, right, to live in peace and love and joy, right, and coherent, cohesive, you know, homogeneous uh, society with very low rates of crime, then you'll be much more likely to stay in Australia than to move to the United States of America. Okay, here are some more comments from Steve Saylor's blog. All right. Uh, so a lot of people in Europe and Asia were very hooked on gridiron NFL highlights back in the 1980s, found them very exciting. They were very disappointed when they finally got to watch a full-length NFL game live, which lasts three hours for only 11 minutes of actual play. Right? Typical NFL game. Last three hours, 11 minutes of actual play. All right? And uh, they found that boring to watch, not nearly as exciting as the highlights. So it's all a part of what you are acculturated for. Right? Unless you make an effort to learn something new, you're always going to use the wrong metric to appreciate what is otherwise foreign to you. Most people pretend to be objective. They really are. So Louis van Gaal, a super manager. Right? We're talking top five, top ten soccer managers ever. Okay, he's widely thought to dislike South American players, so he coached at Barcelona for two years. But the Dutch and the Germans tend to be very blunt and direct, while the, the Spanish and uh, South Americans tend to prefer more indirect criticism. Right? The Dutch, very direct with their criticism. That's not the Spanish way. Spanish culture, South American culture, places much more weight on courtesy. So... Louis van Gaal ran uh, run many of the Spanish language players the wrong way. And so van Gaal therefore thought Spanish language players were soft, and so they underused him. And so he underused Di Maria, the, the key for Argentina's first two goals in the World Cup final, and many comparable players were similarly underused, including Diego Forlan from Uruguay, and this is Van Gaal's long-time pattern. So the Argentina versus Netherlands match was an opportunity for, for payback. So all these players on the Argentinian team, they felt personally slighted by the Dutch manager Louis Van Gaal. And Di Maria was their, their flag bearer. So Argentina saw themselves as defending South American soccer. And you can see that by Lionel Messi breaking his composure, being very public and petty with Louis Van Gaal. So for Argentina, it was a triumphant settling of scores, settling of, of bad blood. Oh, Paul Zimmerman, the longtime Sports Illustrated uh, National Football League reporter, 
he once told a dumbfounded interviewer that American football, gridiron football, had gone from a white game, which meant a strength game, to a black game, which meant a speed game. So if you remember the 1992 Washington Redskins won the Super Bowl, and 91, it was the New York Giants. These were strength teams. Then Dallas came along. It, under Jimmy Johnson, he built the fastest team possible. So the Cowboys have usually been speed teams. Well, the Steelers were strength teams. The Steelers would, would beat the Cowboys in those two classic 1970s Super Bowls. It was an anabolic steroid-fueled strength on the part of the Steelers against Dallas Cowboys' speed and, and trickery. So Lionel Messi is apparently on the spectrum, which explains much of his aloof, borderline, mean-spirited behavior. Also probably explains his game. So does autism benefit athletes in soccer? Probably. Maybe it would benefit golfers and pitchers. So between Lionel Messi and Kanye West, it's been quite a month for autistic overlords. So... Here's uh, evidence that uh, Lionel Messi is. Uh... Oh, come on! Cut out! Cut out! Cut out the! Cut out the music here! Oh man, I'm trying to run a classy show here, and uh... yeah, I mean when you when you look at. When you look at how Lionel Messi comports himself, right? When you just look at him, he does have that kind of aloof, autistic thing going on, right? And then uh, Kanye West also has got some of that aloof, autistic uh, thing going on. And generally speaking, autism does not make for success in life. So as I understand it, autistic people are less likely to understand and to see emotional nuance while they're less likely to see all sorts of layers in various interactions while uh, schizophrenic people read all sorts of things into situations that, that aren't really there. So what do you think? Uh, Lionel Messi, a little bit uh, autistic, but wow, is he the greatest? I'm hearing discussion, not only the greatest soccer player of all time, but is he the greatest athlete of all time? I always thought that was Donald Bradman. So Donald Bradman, the, the fantastic uh, Australian uh, cricket player. He, he retired with like a 99 average. He almost averaged a, a century. In, in playing cricket. So. <laughs> okay, you're probably wondering, 40, what the hell is basball? Now, basball just sounds so incredibly exciting. Now, tell me more about basball. My strongest memory of Brendan McCullum as captain is him flying through the air. Usually trying to stop some near meaningless boundary. Not once, but again and again. Head flying over the padded triangle, right towards the sponsor board with no sense of fear for his own well-being. But before that, Callum did a similar thing with his batting. It had this reckless energy to it that, at the time, didn't really make that much sense. But like the best attacking batters, it made everyone bowling to him feel uneasy. As a spectator, you had to watch. He was as spectacular in success as he was in failure. And bowlers are the attackers in tests. So McCullum flipped that as the best strikers often do. But more often the danger was really the threat of McCullum rather than the reality of it. 
His actual strike rate was at the boom-boom end, but it wasn't always full-on explosive like Sewag or Gilchrist. But McCullum showed us that he was all in, and he helped mould a New Zealand cricket culture that was in danger of splitting due to T20, and he gave them a new identity as their off-field competence group. He was probably given too much credit, but how could you not praise him? The man was flying. Johnny Bairstow has 200 scored at better than a runner ball in Test Cricket. They're both from the last two weeks. Und- so a Test Cricket match typically goes five days. T20 matches last three hours. For McCullum, his strike rate has raised three points in three tests. And it's not even those two matches that he went for. If you look back at Lords, he made 16 from 15, playing a couple of shots per ball. It just didn't happen to work in that one. But it is clear that England have unchained Bairstow. And we do know what a free Bairstow is like. There is a Yuvraj Singish ping off Bairstow's bat when he's in full flight, like he's using a stick made of something more magical than just English willow. In ODI cricket, he had to battle just right, to get into England's team. It was an afterthought. Yet this is him compared to the other ODI players during his career. Butler is faster, Baba and Vera are more consistent, and AB is just better. But Bairstow is hanging with the best players, averaging nearly 50 while striking at more than a runner ball. If his career continues like this in ODIs, then he's quite clearly one of the greatest of all time. And he's obviously pretty good at the IPL. It's- Guys, my, my brother suggested I tell you some jokes, but this is a very elevated show. We, you know, we discuss lofty philosophical issues. We, we discuss God, religion, Judaism, Christianity, nationalism. I mean... I, I, I just, I, I just hate to, you know, sully the the elevated nature of, of the conversations we have here with the with the tawdry jokes of, you know, of workers and and you know, people who hang out in pubs and you know, people who go cottaging. Is there, is there a lot of cottaging in Tenham Sands, mate? What's cottaging? What's cottaging, he says. He pretends he pretends he doesn't know cottaging. No. Cottaging is when you congregate at a public bathroom for gay sex. Oh, I never knew that. You didn't know about cottaging? He pretends to be innocent. He pretends he doesn't know the first never thing heard. about cottaging. I mean, cottaging is as Australian as a meat pie. Oh, but yeah. it's like, oh, never I've never heard of cottaging. Oh, disgusting Oh, oh, mate, oh, that's really homophobic. I mean, who's to say that love that's shared in a public blue is like any less, you know, valuable or holy or worthy? Than... Oh, I'm preparing dinner. You know, I, I, I talk that sort of thing. Wait, you you were trying to encourage me to, you know, share, you know, pleasant, pleasant dirty joke, not unpleasant. Pleasant dirty joke. It's still, I, I'm just, I'm just getting vibes of homophobia. Tell them the one about the clock. <laughs> No, that one's filthy. I can't. I can't. I can't. They, they'd much rather hear about baseball. I mean, they're absolutely fascinated by the, the latest developments in, in English cricket. I mean, compared to, like, filthy jokes about women having sex and playing golf. The golfing joke, yeah, that is a good one. It's filthy. It's absolutely disgusting. I I can't believe that I would... My my lips couldn't even form the words for that kind of, you know, vulgar humour. It took him a long time to get there, and then he exploded his first year. My brother thinks that dirty jokes are more entertaining than most of what I've been talking about. So press one if you want dirty jokes. Now press two if you want more of these scintillating insights into life, like a a nuanced, layered, complicated, 
analysis of you know of, of plant life, animal life, human life, uh, subspecies, subcultures, religion, nationalism. You, you really want to hear dirty jokes? God forbid. Did I ever play any sports? Yeah, I played a bunch of sports. Never any good, right? I was never any good with the sports. Oh, one mate says, I actually heard a gay activist make the argument seriously, the one about cottaging that uh, you just made, ironically. Yeah, like, you know, who's to say that uh, you know, one form of uh, human connection is, is somehow superior to another? But basball, I mean, are you guys excited by basball? Just blows my been mind. Been here two poor seasons before two solid I wouldn't say he's been an out-and-out star, English cricket, but right? he's at the right end here with a very good record. And then look at him at tests. These are the guys with more than 3,000 runs in his era. And we've shown you him twice at the good end. And now he's way down the bottom. It probably says a lot about England that he and Stokes are so low. And he was a keeper for a lot of this. But he actually averages more with the gloves on. And of course, he's had bad treatment that led to a lot of this. If England wanted to ruin a player like him, one with incredible talent but also fragility, they nailed their execution. And you might be thinking that Besto is just a white ball talent which is why it hasn't translated consistently in test matches. But he's been a gun for Yorkshire, averaging 50 over his career and having periods where he completely dominated. And again, he did this as a wicketkeeper. Bairstow could certainly play the red ball, and we had seen flashes of it before, but now we're seeing an explosion of it. And while the phrase baseball is quite new, this is the second incarnation of it. The original was clearly in New Zealand, where he took the captaincy, fairly aggressively, from Ross Taylor. In the previous four years, the Kiwis had won six test matches and lost 15. With him in charge, their record was 11-11. and 11. Of course, many things changed, like the fact they assembled their greatest ever seen bowling lineup. But batting-wise, they were also quite a bit faster. Their runs per over were 3.4, good enough to be the second quickest side in the world. And you can see that most teams were hanging around three, so this was pretty fast. And it was quite a leap from four years prior. And it wasn't just the batting, was it? It was fields, changing plans, getting the players to commit. Basball was a lifestyle choice. But basball, guys, that's a, it's a lifestyle choice. Right? Basball is not just a cricket strategy. Basball is a way of life. It's an ethos. It's an ideology. It's, it's a path forward for humanity. It's a better way of living. It's an elevation of the human condition. It's... I think it, it's our best path forward in this complicated world that is just riven by, by tragedy, unnecessary conflict, pain, suffering, outrageous rates of crime, high electricity rates. How do we move forward in this complicated world? Through baseball. Baseball is the way forward. Also, the teachings of Mark Shapiro. Right? Good old Mark Shapiro. Okay, he really knows what's everybody. up. So let's let's play a little Mark Shapiro here. Your government to punish people who so we're talking uh, about the rise of reform Judaism and the, the rabbinic response. Often the Jewish community have the authority to punish. So for example, they could put people in in their own jails and lash them. If you go to um, Prague. And you go into the outnoise shul, you have that room right in the lobby there. It looks like a little jail cell, and uh, people assume that that's where they would keep. Uh... So traditionally, the Jewish community could just discipline themselves. They could they could put their own bad, you know, bad people, criminals, you know, in their own jails. Like the, the wider society, the kings and the lords and the aristocrats, you know, allowed Jews essentially to run their community autonomously and maintain their own jails. 
So better for, for Jews to discipline Jews, right? And to allow the Goyim to do it. Jewish prisoners, they would put them there. That way they can still hear Kriyas and Torah and things like that. Dominic. But uh, that's one theory. Another theory is that that's where they used to keep the money. But we know that they had their own their own prisons because uh, the Shah Ephraim uh, um, of uh, Buddha, Ephraim Akohen, uh, he, he has a question there. Do you, can, does, does the Jewish prison need a, a mezuzah on it? And uh, we have times when they would, uh, if they thought they were really bad, they couldn't control them, they'd hand them over to the government. So uh, that, that's what's going on. And the, the letters go on. They, can, they talk about how sinful the reformers are. They refute all of their suggestions. There's letters by Rabbi Kiva Eger, Sofer, other rabbis, including the Italian rabbis. Uh, but that was important to have the Italian rabbis. But uh, let me uh, show you um, another thing here. Um, hold on a second. Uh, get back here. Um, by uh, one of the Italian rabbis, because I think just I think just like we saw with Rabbi Wine's book, I think maybe there's maybe there's some censorship going on uh, here with one of the Italian uh, letters on page um, 50, the letters of the rabbis of uh, Padua. So uh, in the middle uh, here it says. Uh, the lowering because uh, it has the two dots, the, the, the squiggly marks there. Later on, actually, it's what, he, what he's saying is, I believe, he's reading this Maorin as a pun from Maorin, um, meaning those who subvert or who undermine uh, the law. That's what I think it is. He's saying, um, and then uh, it ends uh, his letter in uh, 1819. Notice he signs the letter, the day that uh, is doubled, uh, that's referring to Tuesday. Rabbinic writers sometimes will throw in his malitza because look in the, uh, the beginning of Rishis. The only day where it says uh, tov twice is Tuesday. So you say yom shenichlobo, uh, the expression ki tov. Uh, the next letter, we're getting to the end here, um, pages 78 to 79. You know, time to go through all the letters that get all in here, but this is, um, here he says, his name is Yaakov. Doesn't give you his last name. His last name is Orberbaum. Rav of Lisa. I was muted. So my brother's not very happy about the Labour Prime Minister of Australia, Anthony Albanese. He's developed this uh, energy policy where he's putting caps on liquid natural gas prices. What about petrol? Petrol, coal, natural gas, it's putting maximum prices that can be charged. And so the natural resources industry is not very happy because the prime minister is changing the rules of the game with the game underway. They've invested billions of dollars, right, in liquid natural gas and other resources. And now their potential profits can be capped. And you also have increasingly finance companies that don't want to lend to produce, you know, uh, carbon-based fuels. So you have, you know, global elites increasingly trying to crack down on fossil fuels. At the same time, countries like Australia in in Sydney and and in the state of Victoria are going to have a lack of energy prices. They're going to have escalating energy prices. prices. Uh, So America has far and away the cheapest electricity in the world. So I remember I was shocked when I came over here and found out that most people in Australia put their their washing out on a a, uh, clothes pin to, to dry. All right. In America, I almost never see that. Everyone puts their, their clothes in the dryer. That's because electricity prices are so much cheaper in America compared to anywhere else in the world. So to save money on electricity, you know, Australians and other people around the world you know, put their clothes out on a clothesline to dry. 
but uh, America has very low electricity prices. So what are going to be the implications? What will be the effects of Anthony Albanese's energy policies, Paul? It will crimp investment in, a, in one of Australia's most successful industries. Okay, or crimp investment in one of Australia's most successful industries. Just to keep the greenies happy. And But what about when ordinary people get an advantage from paying lower prices? Not really. It will barely flow through to them. Um, but people will lose jobs and the country will lose export income. We lose investment and it will hurt the regions, the regions that we're in here. You know, it may benefit people of inner city Melbourne and Sydney, but it won't benefit regional Australia, where the wealth of Australia is created. The wealth of Australia is not created in the big cities. It's done out here. People sweat and work hard to make export income. Now, haven't Australians had to pay a lot more money for energy? I mean, haven't because of government rules enforcing, you know, green energy yeah, projects? Yeah. All the mandates for green energy increase the cost of electricity. Absolutely. And the what, what are some of the more implications from Anthony Albanese? So Australia will have less energy. The, the Australian energy producers will have less profit. Australia will be more vulnerable. Uh, industry may not have access to energy, so in, industrial production may be affected. Like ordinary daily life may be negatively affected because if you don't have power, you can't have a first world country, right? Well, it's economic nonsense to think that a price cap is a solution to a problem. Every economist in the world will tell you that doesn't work. All that does is depress investment and therefore depress supply. So if you have a high price, it's a matter of supply and demand. You can either decrease demand or increase supply. If you try and put a price cap on the commodity, it reduces the supply. It doesn't solve the problem. It only makes it worse further down the road. So how are energy producers responding to the Labor government? Well, they have to act within the law. So right. if the laws change, they have to abide by the law. But their reaction will be to invest in some of the neighbouring countries rather than Australia. So Papua New Guinea will get increased gas investment and we'll get less here. It's stupidity, economic stupidity, but it's what you'd expect from the socialist government. And how's it going over with the voters? So I assume this is popular with, you know, people in the big cities, but unpopular with regional Australia. I would say that in a nutshell. Yeah. Okay. So there's some uh, down-home, you know, regional Australian wisdom as uh, we, we deal with an interfering socialist government here who are cracking down on our energy suppliers in Australia. Let's get some more wit and wisdom here from Professor Mark B. Shapiro talking about the rise of reform Judaism and the orthodox rabbinic the response. Pitch. He says, well, he begins by saying, right in the paragraph, the third paragraph here, that uh, regarding an organ on Shabbos, that the, the people permitted it, said that the Shavuos can come mitzvah. He says, I don't see any mitzvah at all or any connection to a mitzvah. He says it's forbidden to have music in the show. He's saying Ugav, but it refers to all music, we'll see, uh, even during the week. Same thing the Chassam Sofer says. Why? Because the Chassam's, because the, uh, the Rambam and the, the Shulchan Aruch say that um, we can't, since the destruction of the Basement Dash, we can't uh, play um, musical instruments. Now, the, the, the time we can play musical instruments is when it's a mitzvah, a Sudas mitzvah, or Chassam Chassam Makawa. But davening, there's no uh, connection of that. To, we understand why in a 
a Sunnah's mitzvah or at a Hasidah Gala, you dance, but you don't dance in Shul, you don't dance in Tefillah, so what possible reason could there be for music? No reason, which makes it usher. And then he says, as I said, in Hasidah Gala, you can, but these people, in Tzishigam, they're not changing the tax rates. Their only big blemish is this energy policy so far. Right, so they're not like Gough Whitlam, you know, who made no, radical they're changes. Not, they're not radical, no. So, I mean, there's there's not that much difference between Labour and the Conservative Coalition, is that right? On probably about 80% of your policies here. There is a different focus mm-hmm. in in terms of regional Australia, the the big cities, right. uh, and Labor is far more focused on the big cities, and the coalition is far more focused on the regions. And when it comes to the division of resources and government expenditure and and, and everything that associated with that, the regions miss out because the inner cities are, are getting the biggest slice of the pie. And now the teals are very much down with these energy restrictions, right? Because climate change, the, the teal independents who were very important in this election, they're, they're very concerned about climate change. Isn't that like their number one issue? Yeah, well, they're very much an inner city elite who mainly are very well-off people who have never seen a coal mine or, or a gas well. But when they come home at night, they think they can just switch on the lights and have electricity. They hop in their Porsche and drive to the shops. So they're hypocritical. These people are, are, are using large amounts of fossil fuel energy, yet at the same time they're criticising it. And uh, my thoughts is, well, if they don't like fossil fuels, we should stop sending them to the city and just uh, keep them for the regions and export them, which is what makes Australia a wealthy country, is our export of fossil fuels. Without that, we would not be a wealthy country. You know, we, we're in somewhere in the top 10 in per capita incomes, I assume, in the world, and uh, a lot of that comes down to our success in the export of fossil fuels and other minerals. Now, the, the coalition, also the Conservative coalition, has essentially signed on with climate change and signed on with like world protocols regarding climate change. So climate change has become a, a bipartisan issue in Australia. It is, to a degree, but each have a different degree. Some are asking for a higher cut than others. So the coalition had a more conservative uh, approach to uh, carbon emissions. You know, we were looking at a a reduction of around 42% in carbon emissions uh, by 2030, where Labor, I think, have signed up for something in the vicinity of 50%. So maybe it's not that big a difference, but it's just a perception that the coalition were not as strong on cutting greenhouse gases. But we get a lot of, you know, carry on about this, but Australia only accounts for about 1.2% of global emissions. So it doesn't really matter much what we do. It won't make much difference. At the same time, countries like China, who are the world's biggest emitters, are taking very little action. Now, you've been mocking climate change for three decades. Now it seems like the whole country's largely turned against you. Is that a fair perception? Yes. Yeah, I feel I'm, I'm on the, the minority end of the spectrum to be not particularly concerned about climate change. It seems like the political mood has has shifted and I think it's shifted all around the world so 
it's, it is what it is. I still remain somewhat sceptical of the whole system and I feel it is in some way a grab for power by governments to, to have more control over people. And uh, what do you think about how Australia reacted to COVID with all the lockdowns? I think some of them were, were... Some restrictions were maybe essential, but I did feel we had some abuse of our human rights. I think it went over the top, and particularly the state of Victoria, which was particularly draconian on people. It was sort of more resembled China than Australia. So in the end, people should be responsible for their own health. I don't, don't agree with forced mass vaccinations. I do believe in vaccinations. I've been vaccinated myself and my family are, but I think that is a personal choice. I don't believe that uh, government should force people to take medication they don't want, and if people choose to die from COVID, that's their choice. So how come you primarily watch and listen to the ABC? You could be watching Sky After Dark where you get a bunch of commentators who basically have your view on things. Oh, happy to listen to the other opinions. It doesn't change my opinion fundamentally. So just, just listening to what you already agree with is sometimes a bit empty. Right. I mean, you find the ABC more intelligent than than the commercial networks, right? Yeah, somewhat, but it has definitely got a left-wing bias to it. Oh, do, do we have water-saving toilets in Australia? Do yes, they... it was vent invented in Australia. The dual-flush toilet is an Australian invention. And do you feel oppressed by that kind of tyranny, big government tyranny on your toilets? No, because we have to pay for water, so it's not an inconvenience. It's an innovation, not an inconvenience. Okay, but... Uh, it's been flush with success, you might say. But, I mean, what about people who have to, like, flush multiple times to get the job done? <laughs> I think this conversation is not going in the right direction. Oh, man. So we'll, uh, we'll get back to some... Uh, raise, rabbi. raise the top. We'll, we'll, we'll raise the... Do you, do you know any clean jokes, Paul? Yeah, of course. You know, like any jokes for kind of my elevated audience? They're, no, they're, they're not used to tawdry well, jokes. I'll tell you the jokes that I could even tell the little kids. Okay, yeah, give me, give me so, a joke. I went to the doctor the other day and I said, Doctor, I've been bitten by a wolf. He said, Where? I said, No, just an ordinary one. <laughs> Okay, werewolf, get it, werewolf. I, I didn't get that. All right, that, that had to be very patiently uh, explained to me. So do you think the dual flush toilets still save water, even though, like, someone who has, like, a vegetarian diet, you know, has to use multiple flushes to... I can't, he doesn't, he's afraid. He's just like erected this wall of silence against the dual flush toilet discussion. Like, you're why? You're the person who didn't want any dirty jokes, and now you, you, your discussion has really gone down the toilet. It, it's it's not dirty. It's it's like, I don't know why the globalist elites don't want us to talk about dual flush toilets and the problems for those with the vegetarian diet. You know, when you eat a lot of, you know, bulk, you know, a lot of fiber, like you'd need more. Flushes. Just be twice as flushed as, you know, just, just relax, let it refill and go again. 
Now, have uh, have basic Aussie electricity rates like doubled, tripled in the past five years? They probably have, but personally, I don't pay much for electricity because I have solar on the roof. So many Australians, and you look around our suburb here, I would say 60%, 70% of the households have solar on their roof. So I have a very relatively small solar system, but I would think I would only pay between three and four hundred dollars a year for electricity. If I didn't have that, it would be two to three thousand perhaps for electricity. And if uh, China invades Taiwan, do you think Australia should uh, commit armed forces along with a, an American-led coalition to try to protect Taiwan? Yeah, we will be in. If the US is in, we will be in, regardless. So it's not really a choice. I mean, that's just no. the price of that's having the, price. the American nuclear umbrella. That's the price we, we pay here. Yeah. We'll be all in together. If, if it happens, we'll be all in together. So who do you think were the true winners of the Battle of Brisbane? So the Battle of Brisbane was a World War II battle between Australian soldiers and American soldiers in uh, Brisbane. I think it was a dead heat by the sound of it. Dead heat. <laughs> so how do how do people in central Queensland view Americans? Is it pretty much the same as other Australians? I would think so, yeah. So so what, probably like two thirds positive, would that be fair? We have a complicated relationship with Americans and we regard them as our allies, our friends, um, a necessary evil. People often find Americans a bit difficult to handle on a social level because they speak differently, they have a different culture, and sometimes they can sound a bit loud and obnoxious. Australians are a little bit more laid back, a little bit quieter probably overall. This is just generalisation. Obviously, it doesn't apply to all of them. Uh, Americans tend to be much more open with their emotions. Is that fair to say? You're probably right, and that, that's not what most Australians would be. You don't feel deprived that uh, your fellow Australians aren't more emotionally open with you? No. So one Yang said she went to an opera, the Sydney Opera House. At the end, she she got up to applaud, and she was the only one standing and applauding. So she she thinks that Australians tend to be a little bit more suspicious of uh, enthusiasm. Yeah, I don't think real Australians go to opera. But what about open displays of enthusiasm and open I mean, emotional sport, displays? At the yeah. sport, we, we could be openly enthusiastic. At sport, um, the I don't think we show open emotional feelings very often, though. Don't you wish, though, that people shared more of their feelings with you? Not really, but I can't fix whatever their problem is. But wouldn't you just like to live in a world where people are telling you about what went on in their psychotherapy that week and really. what their psychiatrist says and yeah. you know, the different traumas that they're working through from yeah. childhood and yeah. what their latest medications I are? Tell me how many bags of potty mix they want to buy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so this uh, person thinks that Australians are less inhibited than Americans and more open about sexual matters. No idea. Um, are Australians more honest than Americans? 
Um, in my community, I would trust 99% of the people. Uh, I don't feel there are many rip-off merchants in our community. Um, I'm happy to give credit to people. If people order something, I'll say, well, just come in and pay me when you when you come past next, and 99.9% .9 of them do. So, yeah, I think there's a fair degree of trust. Americans talk more, right? That's one difference. You know, Probably. Americans are much more talkative. Just generalisation. Yeah, that would be a generalisation. And um, what are the other other big differences? I mean, overall, Americans and Australians get on pretty well. I think so. So, although we might make jokes about each other, sometimes making jokes about each other is a sign of closeness. So, we often have jokes about the Poms or the English, as we call them, and we have jokes about the Kiwis or the New Zealanders. They're probably the main people we make jokes about, but in fact, they are our closest relatives. They are culturally very close to us. So the closer we are, probably the more at ease we are at making jokes about them. So uh, what role does religion play in Australia? Very little. But church attendance is absolutely minuscule. So there's very little uh, religious bigotry, um, no, it's not something you sort of come across in your daily life. I've heard it said that Australia's cathedrals are the beach. Well, people don't attend formal churches very often. There may be one or two exceptions in uh, in Christian churches, but in the main Christian churches, they'll be very poorly attended in Australia. There are some other religions, such as the Muslims, who probably still have a high attendance rate per capita of their ethnic group, but um, most Australians are not, not church attenders in any form. How often do you encounter someone who's seriously religious? Uh, almost never. They'd stick out a bit like a sore thumb, right? Well, if they started to say something that would indicate it, it would, would be very unusual. There could be some that have very strong religious views that don't express it in the normal day-to-day -day conversation. So who do you think has been the best Australian Prime Minister of your lifetime? I would think John Howard. Yeah, he led the Conservative Coalition. He won three elections. Yeah. And who do you think has been the worst uh, Prime Minister of your lifetime? Uh, probably Gough Whitlam, but close second would be Kevin Rudd. What? Where did Kevin Rudd go wrong? Kevin Rudd is an egomaniac who cannot make decisions because he wants to micromanage every event. He is just... Just a, a public face. All he wants to do is announce things to the public. He actually can't get any job done. So as a government, it was totally frozen under Kevin Rudd because of his personality. Nothing seemed to ever progress. On the other hand, Gough Whitlam was a, in some way a genius and a very intelligent man, but he didn't have much control over his ministers and government was very chaotic. He overspent, he overtaxed. Um, 
So the Whitlam government was a bit of a disaster. The Rudd government was equally a, a disaster, but maybe not on the same financial scale. Now, it was a bit weird that Gough Whitlam and the, the Labor Party prior to Bob Hawke, they used to always call each other comrade. I mean, that's a real socialist thing, eh? The Labor Party emerged from the split with the Soviet Union and China in the 1960s. It, it heavily influenced the makeup of the Labor Party, with some going more to the left and some going more to the right. So those of a, a Catholic background tended to form the, the, the DLP, which was called the Democratic Labor Party, and the mainstream, more socialist Labor Party was the one that won government. The DLP eventually faded away and its supporters basically support the coalition. The Labor Party was probably at its most left-wing in the 1970s, in the early 1970s under Whitlam, but ever since then has moved more and more to the centre because it realises it can't win elections from the left. I mean, but comrade, that's just like what they did in the Soviet Union. Yeah, well, there was a lot of communist influence in the ALP from the 1950s through to the 1970s. And they also dominate the, the Warfies, right? Didn't communists dominate the Warfie yeah. unions? So there were a lot of communist-based unions that were very strong in Australia in that period, and they were also big financial donors to the ALP. At one stage in the 1970s, I think there was nearly 60% of the workforce was in a union. I think today it's probably around 12% in a union. So the power of unions has declined remarkably. And what do you think about Australia's immigration policy over the last 50 years? Very good. We have probably the world's best immigration policy because luckily we have the water surrounding our country, therefore we can... <laughs> be more sure of who is coming. People can't just turn up here unannounced. So we have an immigration policy based on skills and quotas and numbers. So we do allow a quota for refugees of around 20,000 a year, but the rest of the immigration intake is, is made up of skilled immigration and family reunion. And how well do immigrants, immigrants assimilate into Australian ways? I would say very successfully, very successfully. So we have a lot of ethnic diversity, particularly in the big cities, and I think, as you know, you've walked around Sydney a lot in the last month or so. There's, there's little or no sign of any racial tension or problems. We don't really have ghettos or one or more ethnic groups. Um, I think Australian society, so long as the rules are kept, it's a yeah, it's a it's a pact with the Australian population that immigration is supported so long as the rules are being observed and the government is upfront about the numbers that they are proposing to bring in each year and that they, that schedule is stuck to. Uh, that we are mainly bringing in skilled migrants. In many cases, these migrants will be very successful people in Australia who will come here, fill important jobs and pay taxes. So we feel there is an overall net benefit for Australia, not a net deficit. And you personally love diversity, right? Yeah, or well, I'm married to... Uh, to diversity. Yeah, I'm married <laughs> into diversity, and, and you and I are... Yeah, some 
DNA from other regions that are not white as well. Right, right. But yet, this is like a 95% white community, like central Queensland, regional Australia is about 90, 95% white. Oh, where I am, it is, but if I go to Brisbane where my daughters are, uh, it's probably 40% Asian and most of in Brisbane. Uh, we go to Sydney, it's probably even higher than that, Melbourne too. So um, I feel quite at home in um, Asian environments. Didn't Australia exclude Asian immigrants, particularly Chinese in particular, because they work harder than average Australians? And so the labor unions and average Australians didn't, want to, didn't feel like they could compete with harder working Chinese labor. Correct. This was in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. It was generally regarded that Chinese could be employed for half the price of a white man. So they were in high demand and they did tend to work harder and they tried to exclude them from industries like shearing because they knew if the Chinese were allowed to do shearing, they'd outcompete the white men. So there was often hostility to Chinese because they worked harder and were more successful. And how, how real was the Aussie fear of the yellow peril? Meaning invasion from I think it was China. Really, very real. Probably not so much from China, but in World War Two, it was very real that Japan was getting very close to Australia, and we were a population of only eight million. We were had sent most of our elite troops to Europe to fight for, for, for Britain, to save Britain from Germany, but it left us hugely exposed, and uh, we had to fall into the arms of the US to get saved. But is there, has there been fear of the yellow peril post-World War II? Yes, there, there, there was a, a fear for many, many decades. Uh, that's why we engaged in a high immigration intake after World War II to try and populate the country, to make it stronger and more able to defend itself. What about Indonesia? Is there any, isn't, aren't there like 275 million Indonesians? Is there any concern that Indonesia might try to take over Australia? I don't think so because Indonesia is a very diverse population and I don't think they've got the wherewithal uh, to launch an invasion of Australia. But, you know, you can't say never. Years' time, things may be different, but at the moment it is a developing country, and I think their focus is on improving the, the lives of their own citizens. I don't think they have any desire to expand their borders, not at least for the foreseeable future. Do you think Australia should go nuclear, acquire nuclear weapons? Yes, yes. And is this part of the national conversation? It's a hard one because many people would not, not agree with that idea, but I think it is going to be a necessary deterrent to have some, some nuclear deterrent and some ability to project that nuclear weapon, you know, great distances. What do you think about the US uh, selling Australian nuclear-powered submarines? I think an excellent idea. Okay. Okay, thanks, mate. Okay, so what's uh, what's for dinner? What are we cooking there? Are you turned off? Just a second here. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me play a little. 
They invented this idea that in tefillah, you can also have music. Uh, and he goes on. Tefillah, he says, Where do we see that there's a concept in davening of simcha? Adarabah, he says. It's mavur v'niglahu. The main focus of davening is on uh, we're repenting. We're saying how bad we are. Before davening, it says we have to, uh, you know, collect ourselves. And the Gemara says, uh, it says, it says in, in Brachos, uh, you don't stand to daven not for sadness and not the laziness, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but by simcha shal mitzvah, uh, you should approach prayer from an atmosphere and joy the joy of mitzvah. So you might say, well, that means that you should have simcha when you daven. But he explains that no. And if you look in the Shulchan Aruch, uh, it's um, I'll read it for you here. In uh, let's see, um, I get now where it's uh, he'll cite it a little later. But it's not. Uh, it's no. What he says is that this is only for before you are praying, you're supposed to get have that in your mind. You're supposed to feel good and happy, but not during the actual prayer. And in fact, that's the that's the Lushon, as I recall. Uh, yeah, he says, uh, yeah, if you look in the Tzadi Gimel, he says, um, for an hour before you daven, you should, you should, uh, you know, um, have your mind uh, in a certain way. And then he, he goes on and talks about how uh, you should have simcha. Uh, but th- th- this is in the section Kodem Shis Pavo. And then you have simcha going, Divrit Talchumishal Torah. Um, so he understands this all referring to before Davini. And what do you do during Davini? He says as follows. If you go before a human king, he says, if you come before a human king to, to fall for your life because you sinned against him, imagine he says, you come to the bottom line of, um, the bottom line, he says, if you come before a human king to plead for your life and repent for your sins, and you come before him with uh, musical instruments, he's going to be furious. Can you imagine? You come before the king and you're, you're asking him, please spare our lives, you know, uh, let us live in peace, etc., etc., and you come with musical instruments, he'll think you're crazy. Uh, what does simcha have to do with when you have bechi, crying, and tachanunim? But in a time where you don't have an oval, a sin, then you can come with sheer. So, for example, at a, at a simcha, at a wedding. But davening, you're going to be happy? No, you need to be uh, quiet and fearful. That's what davening is. And then he says, goes on, certainly when it deals with God. When the Beis Hamikdash was around, he goes on, uh, uh, when was it possible? So there's a, a great bit in this talk where he, he describes uh, polemics as cute, right? So, I mean, from a scholarly perspective, you know, polemics, you know, the, the Ben Shapiro's of the world, I mean, that's, it's cute, it's, it's silly, but uh, polemics ultimately are pretty empty and not exactly convincing with anyone with depth and wisdom like uh, the good people on the show. Simcha. You have a Simcha space Shaleva, for instance, uh, uh, etc. Then you had a great Simcha. However, from the day that the base of Migdash was destroyed and no more Ruach HaKodesh and no more Devua, uh, the only way we can repent is through our prayers. And how could you, how can you come before him with Shir and Klezemer? It's almost like he's saying you can't come before him singing. Because you, if you're coming before a king and uh, you're, you're pleading for your life, would you sing also? No, you wouldn't sing. But that's his Lashon. It's as if the Nesivos is saying you just... I mean, if you think of prayer this way, that it's just pleading for our life, then what are you seeing for? Um, he says, He says, Our davening before God should be no different than our requesting things, praying for our life before a human king. Because only when you're at a chasana, then that's the mitzvah to rejoice. But other times, absolutely not. So he says, There's no question that this is not, God does not want this. And then he goes on to say, that's just during the week. 
that you can't ever have a musical instrument in Shul. On Shabbos, he goes on that it's certainly, it's forbidden. Vafil b'chola, sorry, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, then, then he does the point I mentioned about, uh, what does it mean, in Om Dinlis Palo. Although I don't think that's the Pshat, uh, necessarily. I, I'll give you an example of something else where I don't think necessarily what he's saying is the Pshat. Here, I'll show you. Um, he quotes uh, an example where it says, uh, uh, where Abaye was sitting here, and this is Brachos 30b. The Gemara relates, Abaye was sitting before his teacher, uh, uh, Rava, Rabba, and Rabba saw, they should have put an H at the end, uh, it's Rabba, and Rabba saw that he was exceedingly joyful. He said to Abaye, it's written, rejoice with trembling. One's joy should not be restrained. So, uh, so he's saying, oh, okay, so, this, uh, so he's saying this, so here you see that, uh, you know, we shouldn't really have joy. And, and he says, the most joy is with Klishir. So uh, if uh, Rabbah tells Abaye, he shouldn't be so joyful, then Kavachomer, we shouldn't uh, have musical instruments. That makes us uh, uh, have joy. But I mean, it's, I don't know what one thing has to do with the other, but that's his argument. And then he continues, hey, look, this is a very austere approach to prayer. Can you imagine getting up and telling people today, when you pray, you shouldn't have simple, you shouldn't have song, you shouldn't feel as if the sword is hanging, Damocles' sword, you know, is hanging right over you. Uh, that's not uh, what uh, we do. You don't need to walk around with a guitar and a saxophone like you saw two weeks ago or last week to understand, I mean, that we have singing, we get into it this way, uh, and we all know that if we're going before Putin, you know, he decides to turn on the Jews and they have to send uh, Rabbi Lazar there, you know, to try to, you know, request mercy on the Jews. Uh, he's not going to come with and start singing before Putin or anything like that. But music is not something new. We've been singing music for a long time. It's not just in the base of Migdash. Uh, but you see how his conception of prayer. And then he goes on and talks about the importance of belief based on faith, not seichel. We don't need to get involved with that. And then he concludes, and this will be the last thing, oops, uh, and this will be the last uh, of the letters we look at today. Let's see, uh, pull it up here on page 80. He concludes as follows. And this is in the Sivos. Uh, most people don't know that in the Sivos. They just know him um, from his halachic writings. They don't know him from uh, this letter. Um, on page 80, he concludes the paragraph uh, beginning... Um, where is it? Velo. Just, well, it's not actually the conclusion, but he says Velo. What does he say? Um, listen to this. After explaining how uh, you have to be a good citizen and all this stuff, he says, not just us, the Israel are, you know, um, obligated in this, but every nation and language is obligated in this, as we've seen that the, the, the Malchus and the Shulton. Okay, that was uh, Mark Shapiro giving the traditional orthodox argument you shouldn't, you know, get too giddy and too happy in prayer. Find a, a fascinating response to the rise of reform. Judaism, the chat says Donald Trump is staying on Truth Social. It's a hint he has a foot out the door. Trump needs to cut ties and to do Twitter if he is serious about running in 2024. I 100% agree with you, uh, Bill. It's just that he has the opportunity to make $100 million if he continues to post exclusively on Truth Social rather than Twitter. I mean, the, the governments in every Medina are mocked. All governments insist that people be connected to their particular religions. They shouldn't be split up. They shouldn't be divided into different groups where everyone does what they want. Because in this, the whole nation depends on the fact that everyone stays connected to their religion, not make new religions. So already you see here, again, this point we have, he's saying that the, the reformers are, they're not loyal. They're creating a new sect. That's something dangerous. The government won't want this. So you, we can use this to shut... So there is a lot of confusion. Is this a serious show? Is this a humorous show? Is this like a, a look forward indulgence show where he has zero regard for the viewer? Like, what kind of show is this? Like, who are we? What are we doing here? What's the purpose? Is there a through line to these these shows? Is this just all for a laugh? Or are we plumbing the depths 
of either intellectual thought and moral struggles. I, I need you to help me out here. Is this is this all for a laugh? Is this all for a joke? Is this all for you know, just a bunch of blokes sitting around, you know, chewing the kosher fat? Or is this cutting edge you know, societal evolution, you know, breaking taboos? Are we, you know, innovating, comprehensive, thoughtful, nuanced perspectives on the nature of the political, the nature of the religious, you know, cultural life, uh, multiculturalism, nationalism, you know, the individual versus society. What the hell is going on here? Is this just 40, you know, blowing up? Is this just 40 amusing self? God forbid, is this just 40 committing an act of, like, public masturbation? God forbid, God forbid. Or is this deep and meaningful and serious, or is this all just a joke and and 40s self-indulgence? Like, please help me out here. What the hell is going on with this show? He says, for all arguments and disputes between one man and another, if there's no witnesses, the only way they can determine who's lying if there's no witnesses is we make them take an oath. And the whole purpose of the oath is only based on whether you believe. What he's saying here is that those who have no religion, namely the reformers, are not regarded as trustworthy people. Their oath in the court of law would not be acceptable. He's saying that the reformers are not can't be good citizens because they don't practice Judaism, they don't practice a real religion, they invent some religion, but that also means that they're a danger to the, to the functioning of society because you can't trust them because uh, when everyone goes to court, you can't believe their oaths because they're not believers. This is like Masira, you could say, but in the reverse. Then he's being Masir, the reformers, that he thinks it's okay to be Masir them, to Masir them, to inform on them. And then we conclude uh, in the, the paragraph, the second, last full paragraph, he says, just like we believe that uh, God controls the world, so we believe that the king and the government is chosen, is the chosen one of God. Um, and just like we ask in our prayers to rebuild the temple uh, so that we can observe the mitzvahs the way we should uh, and uh, you know, receive the Shrina again, um, uh, and everyone will be gathered in the land of Israel. So too, we request in prayer the uh, the, the welfare of uh, the uh, the kingdom, because that that's basic. Uh, we can't observe our religion without uh, a government that uh, you know runs things smoothly and properly. Uh, and he concludes uh, in some in the in our prayers, there's no opposition to the uh, the peace of the the, the Malchus uh, Shaloma. Its peace is our peace, because the reformers uh, were arguing that uh, we need to say if we want to be loyal Germans, we don't believe anymore in a return to the land of Israel. Our, Messiah, our Messianic era is here in Germany. And the implication is that um, if you're hoping to be redeemed and brought to the land of Israel, then you're not really a loyal citizen uh, to Germany because your loyalty is to this far off uh, Messianic kingdom that's going to come. So you see the Nesivos here. So it's just the opposite. Uh, they're very loyal uh, to the government. Tell, this is tell, yeah, course, uh, and I'm growing corn. I'm growing zucchinis. I'm growing tomatoes. I'm growing parsley. And does it taste any different, though, than what you can buy in a store? Absolutely. Much better place. I mean, how would you describe the difference in the taste? It tastes like vegetables should taste. If they haven't been in cold storage, they were growing. Half an hour ago, some of these were growing. Okay. Now we're eating them. And are they better for you? Probably, but they do taste better. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, it's, uh, it's time for dinner. We will continue this fascinating conversation later. Bye-bye.